You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Dan Lieberman, who is a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, also the author of multiple books. Most recent book is this one called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding, which builds a lot on the concepts and frameworks that you introduce in an earlier book called The Story of the Human Body, Evolution, Health, and Disease. Uh, welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this book, Exercised, you, know, you said at the beginning of the book that this is not a self-help book. And uh, of course, <laughs> you know, I very much disagree with that description of the book or that disavowal, because I think that this book contains an enormous amount of helpful insight in terms of how we can improve our health. You know, you talk about the evolutionary anthropology approach, but in many ways, it's also kind of related to this discipline of evolutionary medicine, right? Which is, if we really want to improve our lives, and I, and I think it was at the end of the story of the human body where you kind of appropriate Voltaire's exhortation and say that, you know, we need to cultivate our bodies. Well, if you're going to cultivate your garden, you need to understand a bit about flowers and soil and light and water and stuff. And I think if you're going to cultivate your body, you need to know a little bit about kind of how your body works. And to do this, medicine is the approach that most people think will take them to a better understanding of, of the body. But you say, if we really want to understand the, the human body, we have to kind of understand our organism and the evolution of our organism and the environment in which our organism was shaped. And in the book Exercise, you dig into a very specific series of attributes and behaviors that humans have engaged in for a very long time. And in the book, talk about a bunch of different myths, right? I was struggling with that because I didn't really know who believed these myths and who didn't believe these myths. But as a framework, you're making the point that this narrative really fits into this idea of evolutionary mismatch, right? The modern world is in many ways very, very different, in many ways very much better, but in ways that are different. And we're not well adapted for it necessarily. And so, you know, one of the options that we have that you highlight in the story of the human body is that if there are any of these pathologies, which are a result of the mismatch, well, we can just let evolution run its course. And this might take a few hundreds of thousands of years, <laughs> or we can, we, there's some other actions available to us, right? Around changing our environment and kind of just having a better understanding of you know, how we operate. And the book exercised, I think is very personal for you because you are a runner. And so you talk a lot about running, presumably you run along the Charles River. I guess I remember when I lived in Cambridge, I would also run along the Charles River, which is very nice. Run. But this, this idea of mismatch, you were studying the human head. That was sort of where you, you started off and, and you wrote a book on the human head. How did your study of the human head lead you to kind of start focusing on things like mismatch? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, there's never a single moment or event of course, but I guess I went through a kind of midlife crisis while I was working on the, on the evolution of the human head, um, because, um, while working on that book, I decided to write a chapter on the head in locomotion because it's really not thought about very much. And I, I didn't know too much about it. And part of that was motivated by some experiments that I had done 
way back when, when I was a, a postdoc. Um, this is when you had the pig on the we treadmill? Were, that's right. Yeah. So I was running pigs on treadmills for complicated reasons, but the, but not to study running. It was to study variations in how different parts of the skeleton respond to the effects of loading. And Dennis Bramble, dear friend and colleague from the University of Utah, was on a sabbatical at, at Harvard at the time with, uh, with one of my advisors. And he kind of walked into the room and was observing this pig on the treadmill and pointed out to me what something I had just had noticed, which is that the pig, when it runs on a treadmill, can't hold its head very still. So flopping around in a very ungainly fashion. Pigs aren't really great runners, if you didn't know that already. The next door in the room that, where they were doing some very famous experiments actually ended up on the cover of science. They were studying dogs, putting them in front of an x-ray camera and, and looking at how, how when dogs run, they they move, they breathe, and but the dogs, when you put them on a treadmill and they get them galloping, their head is like a missile. It stays really stable. And so that led to discussions about how we stabilize our heads, and that led to whole series of experiments, which we started doing and, and working on the evolution of running. And when we published this paper in 2004, the Born to Run paper, which was on the cover of Nature, and I got really interested in running and, and head stabilization and all that. And meanwhile, I was writing this long academic book on, on the human head. And I was thinking, like, why am I writing this book that, you know, maybe 50 people will read? Well, it's been read more than 50 people, but still, it's an academic book. Um, whereas, you know, the, the work that I was doing on running, you know, really struck a, a nerve and a chord with people. I was getting letters from all over the world. We were on, you know, news, newspapers all around the planet. And more importantly, I started thinking about how and why that the story that humans evolved to run is relevant to health and disease. And that's how I really started thinking, you know, what am I doing with my life? Why am I studying, you know, brow ridges and chins and noses when I could be studying how to help people lead healthier, happier lives and how evolution is relevant to that. And so I just sort of slowly transitioned towards working more and more in running and getting more and more interested in, in the health implications of the evolutionary story of running. And it just kind of, it just kind of happened. And so the story of the human body, actually the working title, if I can use swear words on your podcast. But the working title on my laptop was, Why Should Anybody Give a Shit About Human Evolution? It was really, it was kind of a, a book that I started out of frustration because I was teaching undergraduates and they're all wondering why I'm teaching all this stuff. And I was really thinking about, you know, why do most people really want to know what happened in human evolution? And the answer is, it's actually extremely relevant to how we live our lives. Well, I think most people know and understand that kind of the sedentary lifestyle that we live in the modern world is is unhealthy, right? You know, everyone tells us this from doctors to media and so forth. So I guess, I guess the question then is, why do we need to be reminded of this? I mean, I think this is really the thrust of the book exercise, right? If something is, is good for us, like, why don't we just jump out of bed and start doing it, right? I mean, it, well, I, you think, know. I, think, I think the common way in which we think about it, just which you just phrased, is so uncompassionate and uninformed by our evolutionary history. The first page of the book is a definition of physical activity and a definition of exercise. So physical activity is just moving, but exercise is discretionary, voluntary physical activity for the sake of health and fitness. And not only is that a not a novel behavior that we never evolved to do, because until recently, nobody exercised. People, people were physically active because they had to be. It's also actually, until recently, a bad idea, right? If you're a hunter-gatherer, or for that matter, a subsistence farmer on the edge of survival, right, getting just enough calories to pay for yourself and your family, Going for a five-mile run every morning would be a really stupid thing to do, right? You're just wasting 500 calories a day that you could otherwise spend on your family and your health and your, you know, 
things that really matter. So there are deep and fundamental instincts not to do this sort of thing, right? To go, like the run, you know, I, I would have liked to have gone this morning, but I didn't manage to do. It's an instinct not to do that. And yet we tell people they're lazy. There's something wrong with them for not doing it. There's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're obeying their instincts, just as like we sometimes blame people for having trouble dieting. When, when you diet, you turn on all kinds of, of starvation adaptations that prevent you from losing weight. And then we blame people for, for struggling. They're trying to overcome hundreds of adaptations that evolved over millions of years. And so I think at the very beginning, the very start of the book is really to try to help people understand that we need to take a, that an evolutionary approach, I think, provides us with a more balanced, compassionate, and helpful way of thinking about this important, healthy, but, but absolutely weird behavior. So I think the most commonly understood example of mismatch has to do with diet, right? So in an environment where sugar is very, very scarce, and yet it provides pound for pound an enormous amount of energy, we would evolve to desire it and you know feel really good when we discover it. But when it's in abundant supply, right, the pleasure we get from it is probably misguided. So the exercise book, to summarize it, would be to say, look, in a world where you're going to have to be moving all the time in order to survive, you, you don't need instinct to move around, what you probably do is you need an instinct to conserve your energy, right? And so laziness is really, or energy conservation in some way is our default motivation. Yeah. I mean, look, energy used to be scarce, right? And whenever you have a scarce resource that's limited, uh, you have to engage in trade-offs. And so natural selection favors trade-offs that improve your reproductive success. And so we evolved to be physically active and quite physically active compared to our, our ancestors, our ape ancestors who are, are basically couch potatoes. Well, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only, when it's necessary and when it's rewarding, right? And we evolved to, because of, we evolved in, in environments where energy was limited, we also evolved to avoid unnecessary, unrewarding physical activity. And, you know, think about going to the treadmill in the morning in a gym, right? Talk about something that's unrewarding and unnecessary, right? It's the, it's the apotheosis of that. So there's a reason that, that it's counterinstinctive. On the other hand, we also evolved to need physical activity in order to stay healthy. And, and that's actually an interesting and much more complicated story, which is, you know, my dog can lay around all day long and basically not pay any price for it. In fact, mo the evidence is that most animals don't really pay the same degree of price for physical activity as humans do. And there's really something special about human beings, right? Because we are very long-lived creatures. We tend to live several decades after we stop reproducing. And physical activity is stressful, but in a paradoxical way, the stress that physical activity induces of course, the physical activity used to be necessary, also turns on repair and maintenance mechanisms and other sort of physiological mechanisms that enable us to actually live those seven decades, right? And so when you're inactive, you can, you can live long, but you need a hell of a lot more medical care, right? So in the modern world, people are, you know, we have a distinction between health span and lifespan. The average lifespan of an American today is 79, although COVID is shortening that. The average health span of an American is 63, right? Uh, so the average American spends 16 years in the, towards the end of their life in a state of chronic disability because of heart disease, diabetes, you name it. And these are mostly preventable or you're much less vulnerable to them if you're physically active, especially as you age. Now you spend a lot of time among various hunter-gatherer groups that still survive. I mean, there's a dwindling number of them left, right? And it's pretty hard to find a I group. None. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and even the ones that are left are beginning to get access to education and technology and, and so forth. 
as an evolutionary anthropologist, I mean, you, you have two different ways of getting insight into how, you know, humans lived for most of their history. You know, one is to look at these hunter gatherers and others to kind of go back into the historical record. Are the folks, the, the Hadza and the other hunter gatherer groups that you've looked at, how representative are they of kind of how we lived as humans in our ancestral past? Well, that's a good question. And, and the answer is in some ways, yes. And in some ways, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of variation and, and woe into whoever tries to over Hadzize, you know, the, the past. If you look at data from across a wide number of ethnographic studies of hunter-gatherers from different populations, it turns out the Hadza are pretty average. So if you look across hunter-gatherer populations, average walking distance for females is about nine kilometers a day, males about 15 kilometers a day. Hadza map pretty much right onto that. If you look at you know, diet, you know, of course there's variation across season to season, place to place, you know, hunter-gatherer group to hunter-gatherer group. Um, but Hadza are, you know, not particularly abnormal in terms of you know, about 30% of their calories come from meat, et cetera. They eat a fair amount of honey. They move about seven times a year. So it turns out that, you know, the Hadza are, they're not bad, right? But they're not a perfect window. And we need to understand there's an enormous amount of variation. And of course, we also get information from the archaeological record as well. So there's, you know, multiple sources of data. But, you know, it doesn't really matter because um, no matter how you cut the cookie, until recently, humans had to be very physically active. And until recently, humans ate only wild foods that they gathered and hunted themselves. And until recently, humans didn't have running water. And until recently, they didn't have suitcases with wheels and shopping carts. And I could, you know, the list goes on, right? So there's, there's a lot to learn about, about human biology and, and human physiology and diet from studying uh, these various populations. Actually, the place where I do the most of my research is not with hunter-gatherers. We actually study subsistence farmers, primarily in, in Kenya, but we've also been working in some other parts of the world. because. Again, you know, what we're really interested in is this transition to the modern industrial world. That's, I think, the, the biggest shift that occurred, at least in terms of how we used our bodies. Well, there was a shift to settled agriculture, and then there was a shift to kind of industrial world. Now it's almost like we're in office jobs. So when you worked in the farm or you worked in a factory, you know, you seem to at least get some physical activity, right? I oh, think you, absolutely. Yeah. Farmers, farmers actually have to work a little bit harder on average than hunter-gatherers, a little bit. Although I think we sometimes exaggerate how, how hard people work because of course, when you're really stressed for energy, you know, you really are careful about how much you do and, and not try to overdo it. So people, when they're not working, take it easy in, in these communities. Well, you had a huge list of what you call mismatch disorders in the book on the human body, right? So that list includes not just things like heart disease and diabetes. I mean, it includes, a, there's an enormous number of things. So we would think that Across the board, we would be healthier than folks who live this more primitive existence, right? Certainly, we have fewer pathogens we have to worry about. And, you know, when you break your arm, you can you know, get medical attention. So I think most people are aware of the things that have gotten better health-wise. But what are the things that, that are worse? So when we look at sort of people in, in, in these more basic societies, in what ways are they healthier than we are? Well, it's a complicated mixed bag, right? So in terms of infectious disease, the modern industrial world is fantastic, right? You know, we have sanitation and vaccines and antibiotics. It's night and day. But if you look at especially chronic non-infectious, non-contagious diseases, it's a totally different story, right? And so again, hearkening back to what we talked about earlier, 
there's a big difference between health span and lifespan. So in the modern Western world, people uh, have considerably long lifespans, but those lifespans have partly come at the expense of decreased health spans. The uh, gerontologist at Stanford, Jim Fries, has called the extension of morbidity, right? So as long longevity has increased, morbidity has also increased at an even greater rate. A lot of those morbidities, morbidity means certain illness, comes from mismatched diseases. So diabetes and various other forms of metabolic syndrome, heart disease, cancers, many cancers, not all, but many cancers, um, osteoarthritis, uh, myopia. I mean, a lot of dental problems. I mean, the list is really, really, really long. Most of them don't kill us, at least not initially. And many of them are treatable through medical care. Um, and some of them are, you know, worthwhile, right? I'm not going to give up eating cereals and, you know, go back to eating just tubers and, and whatever. So in order to avoid cavities, I'm, I'm happy to go twice a year to the dentist and, and have, have my plaque removed. So, you know, we have ways of dealing with some of these mismatches. I don't mind wearing glasses too much. Some of these mismatches are, are easily treatable and, and definitely worth the cost. But others like, you know, heart disease, cancers, diabetes, uh, these are much more preventable and we don't have to you know, return to a hunting and gathering way of life in order to prevent them. We can, we can in the modern world do a much better job and evolutionary information helps us figure out how to do that effectively. Well, some of the mismatches are, are due to what we call the hygiene hypothesis, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there is a definite increase in autoimmune diseases and those are, are really fascinating mismatches because... It's not, first of all, not everybody agrees that they're mismatched diseases or they're still poorly understood by, by many people. But of course, your, our immune systems aren't really all that different from the immune systems of our ancestors from a few generations ago. But now they're much less challenged for the most part. COVID, of course, is an is a interesting exception. And the result is that um, our immune systems are much more liable to act against us as, as, as opposed to against various kinds of pathogens. It's, I, I liken our immune system a bit to like teenagers on, you know, or bored, you know, with nothing to do, right? They're much more likely to get into trouble than, than teenagers are a lot to do, right? At least that describes me, right? So your immune system is just like those bored teenagers hanging around. Not, they have, since they have nothing to do, they're much more likely to attack you instead of some pathogen. And so that probably explains the rise of, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and allergies and, you know, a wide range of other kinds of autoimmune diseases that are on the rise because of the increased hygiene. Now, are we going to give up sterilizing things and, and having clean environments? No, but maybe we could do a much better job of, of balancing sterility with, with some appropriate degree of germs and worms that could actually lead to a decrease in you know, type 1 diabetes, for example, which is a, it's a really challenging disease to, to treat. Well, I mean, the other taxonomy of mismatches, some of them have to do with diet. And what I found interesting about your book is that you go back and forth. You talk about the diet story and the exercise story. And I think you're, you're making the point that we're probably emphasizing the diet story too much, right? That changing your diet is fantastic. Getting rid of lots of sugars and so forth is important. And we certainly should heed that advice. But the exercise in many ways, like it's like a silver bullet. I mean, it really does have so many different consequences that go really oh. across across the board. I mean, I would say both are important, and they're just important in different ways. I just think we we often undervalue exercise uh, in our in, in the kind of modern discourse. It's kind of easier. No, to change is your that just diet. because people? It's more difficult to you know yeah. change your your activity <laughs> level than it is to change your diet. Yeah, I mean, and also you have to eat something, right? You, yeah, and you, so you just change what you eat. You don't have to exercise. So, and people have a hard time exercising. You know, and we sort of 
Most people don't like doing it, so we kind of give up on it. Also, the effects of exercise on health are a little harder to evaluate. So diet's just a little bit easier. Not, not that it is easy to study, but it's a bit easier to study. And so, but you know, it's not an either or. And, and in fact, in a lot of epidemiological studies have a hard time separating the effects of exercise and diet because people who tend to eat better also tend to exercise more. They're very strongly correlated with socioeconomic status and education and, and so on. So they're hard to separate and they have different effects. And, you know, any, anybody who really worries about their health would do well to, to do both, right? You can't run away from a bad diet, but diet alone is not going to increase your chances of, of staying healthy. I mean, both are important. And I just felt that one of the reasons I wrote exercise is that I felt that exercise has gotten, you know, short shrift. It's not been been tackled as, as effectively as diet has. Well, could you maybe give us a window into what is this unique ecological niche that, that humans evolved for? You spend some time in the book contrasting early hominids with other primates, and it, it's well, really a very, very different environment that humans evolved for that led to these physical changes. Yeah. So we, you know, we evolved from, from apes that were probably something like chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are closest rel living relatives and the very earliest hominins, that is creatures more closely related to us than to chimpanzees, look pretty chimp-like in, in many respects. So, you know, we evolved from some kind of knuckle-walking creature that lives in a forest eating mostly fruit, that we know, that, that also climbs trees. And the very earliest creatures that are more closely related to you and me than to a chimpanzee were bipeds. They were, were, were walk, walking upright. And that probably uh, occurred because this was a period during our evolutionary history as climate change was causing forests to fractionate. The kind of fruit resources that our ancestors relied on were probably dispersed further apart. And chimpanzees are really expensive, really costly uh, locomotors. When chimpanzee walks uh, a mile, it spends twice as much energy as a human to walk that mile. And that's actually a fair amount of energy, right? And so if you have to walk twice as far to get food, selection is going to act to help you become more efficient. And in the case of these early hominins, it looks like that was to become upright. This is not about, you know, becoming bipedal so that you can use tools or becoming bipedal. All that so happened you later. Can, you can all talk of that with your later. hands or you know, anything all, like all that. Of, all of those good things happened later. So once we became bipeds, then there was selection for us to these these forelimbs for things that, that chimpanzees don't really use them for, at least not as much. But 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 initially it was for is for locomotor efficiency. That's 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 what the best evidence will suggest. And, and of course, the, and then when that, once it happens, then all kinds of other things can happen. And, and eventually our ancestors become hunter-gatherers in Africa. So they incorporate meat into the diet. And that means there's you know, also running as in addition to walking and you know, long distances and tool making and lots of things happened in human evolution. And then our, our reproductive strategies changed and you know, there's a ton of things happened. And you know, we started cooking. And you know, there's a tendency in, in, our, in my field for people to try to point to the one thing that makes us special. And there never is going to be one thing. There's always, those big ideas are, they sound great, but actually there's a lot of things that all change in a complex integrated package to make us the way we are. It's hard to kind of focus on one thing and say, that's it, right? But the long end of all this story, right? At the end of all this millions of years of selection over many, many, many different species, is that we are long-lived, relatively fat creatures that, that have to walk long distances every day, carry lots of stuff, eat a, a diverse diet. I could go on, right? And thermoregulate by sweating and, and so on to make us the kind of extraordinary creatures that we are that were enabled us to, to inhabit pretty much every part of the world, to have diverse diets, 
that range from, you know, the kinds of things that hunter-gatherers in Africa eat all the way up to the Arctic, where, where people survive almost entirely on meat. It's amazing the diversity of human, of human adaptations. And then all of a sudden, bam, we changed it all in a trice, not just with agriculture, but then more recently with the Industrial Revolution. And, and that's what led to a whole host of, of mismatches that um, some of which uh, have been responded to by selection and many of which are so recent, they're just a blink of an eye that we're just still reeling from them. Well, now you describe in the book when you raced some horses, right? <laughs> so I, found that I just learned about this race that is apparently pretty famous where you, you can go into something. Uh, it's a long distance race where you compete not only against humans, but against horses. And so when you look at a human going up against a horse for short distances, I mean, human doesn't stand a chance. I mean, there's, we're, we're not that fast. We're not going to be able to outrun a cheetah. We're not going to be able to outrun a bear. You, you showed some nice graphics about how, you know, Usain Bolt can't even outrun a, like a hyena. So we're not great runners, but our kind of superpower is this, this endurance. So you managed to beat a bunch of horses in this race, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I like to try things that I study and, um, and I enjoy running and, you know, humans evolved to be, we've been writing about this for a long time. We evolved to be endurance runners to help us, to help us hunt. And I've been, I've been invited on a bunch of these endurance hunts, you know, to, Go chase, you know, pronged antelopes and places like yeah, that. Yeah, you describe, but you 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 did you set off with a lot of gear. You had you had your water bottle well, and your sunscreen well, and no, your that, that, bug that was, spray. That and was just yeah. Well, that was just a hunt. That wasn't a running hunt. But there's been this uh, race every held every year for I don't know how long in Prescott, Arizona, where there's like a, you know it's a marathon between humans and horses. And I thought, well, I can do that, right? And so I uh, I joined that race in uh, I guess it was 2016, and uh, it was quite quite fun to. Uh, to kind of put my money where my mouth is to see if I can beat a horse. Um, and actually, um, so I'm not, a, I'm not the world's greatest runner. I'm just an average kind of reasonably good, but not great uh, runner. Never won anything in my life. And there were, I think, uh, 53 horses and I beat all but 13 of the horses. So it just goes to show that uh, middle-aged professors can run, outrun over a 25-mile course, uh, horses in the heat. So that was kind of fun. So speed is not our strong suit, but rather endurance. But we do have the ability to use speed over short distances. Sure. So when you're thinking, because yeah. you, you talk a bit about should we, should we cultivate our sprinter muscles or our endurance muscles, you know, or cardio versus strength, and and you kind of say, well, we really need to understand all of these things and use all of them to some degree, right? Right. I mean, we we have this sort of I don't know we can we get these like big ideas and we're all about one thing or another thing, and of course it's never that simple, right? I mean, if you're chased by a, a carnivore, you're not going to run as fast as the carnivore, but you only have to run faster than the other guy to not be eaten, right? So sprinting is important. Endurance running is important. Strength is important. These are all important for different reasons. And it turns out that you know, we often think about elite athletes as kind of models for us, us understanding physiology. And it's exciting to look at elite athletes because they, they, they represent the extremes of human, human ability and human performance, but they often lead to kind of misguided views. And I think the trade-off between speed and endurance is a good example, right? So it is true that Usain Bolt, you know, world's fastest marathon or a sprinter until you know, recently, you know, could, can run at ridiculous speeds compared to say the world's fastest marathoners, but the world's fastest marathoners are running ridiculously fast already, right? They're running, Elliot Kipchoge, who currently owns the world record for the, for the marathon, he can run, it's like 440 miles for 26 miles, right? I don't know many people who can run a 440 mile at all, ever, 
Very, very few people can run that, right? And he's, he can run it for, I mean, so tell me where the trade-off between speed and endurance is, right? I mean, he's good at both speed and endurance. Um, of course, Bolt can't run 26 miles at, at the, the speeds he's running at. So there's that trade-off between Bolt and, and, and Kipchoge, but Kipchoge is phenomenal at both. And in fact, if you want to work on your endurance, any serious runner will tell you that interval training and working on your speed is actually really critical for working on your endurance. So for most of us, it's not a trade-off. They're actually complementary. So if we want to understand our bodies, we, we need to understand that they evolved primarily for this kind of, you know, hunting and foraging and distance and survival and extreme weathers. But we also evolved to be fighters, right? And you have some interesting material in both books about, you know, how humans, particularly males, they acquired certain characteristics would, which would help them fight. And certainly when you're studying other mammals, it's difficult to understand their physiology without understanding their need to fight all the time. Humans probably don't fight as much as some other mammals, but we do fight a lot more than some mammals as well. How, how much of our physiology is due to fighting? And you, you cite some statistics where I think it was 30% of some hunter-gatherers die of violence, which to me is pretty surprising because my understanding is that conflicts, you know, you don't want to get into a fight unless there's some, unless it's like relatively evenly matched. So it's, it's easier to kind of slink away from a well, fight when you, when you see that you're going to lose, right? First of all, if you want to read a good history of the evolution of violence, I strongly recommend Steven Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our Nature. It's just a, you know, he dispels this idea that our ancestors were, were peaceful sort of Rousseau-like creatures who, who, um, who lived in, in harmony. Uh, we've been a pretty violent species for a long time. Uh, we may not fight the same way that chimpanzees do, but we also fight differently than they, than they do. And, and so, yes, there's, there's a strong streak of cooperation and, and in, in human evolution, but that doesn't mean that we also, there, there isn't also a competitive and aggressive side too. It's just manifested differently in humans. So for example, we, we often talk about how, how you know, body size, so chimpanzees, males are about 30% bigger than chimpanzee females. And whereas human males are about 15% you know, bigger. But if you actually look at fat-free mass, human male humans actually have a lot more muscle mass than, than females because a lot of the differences between human males and females is actually due to body fat in terms of percentage of mass. So it's complicated, right? And I think sometimes we've glossed over some of the differences between male and human and female anatomy in terms of its competitive relationship. But the other uh, thing is that, you know, we've changed how we fight because we have weapons. We've had weapons for an awful long time. And so weapons change how we fight and change the dynamic of fighting and have changed our evolutionary history of fighting. And so in the book, I explore how the evolution of weaponry has, has shifted the nature of human combat. Is it, again... So are weapons old enough to have had that kind of impact? I mean, sure. the, the argument in, in short is that if you can use weapons, it sort of levels the playing field to some degree. And so, you know, the size difference is a little bit less important than it would have been if it was hand-to-hand -hand combat, let's say, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, spears with, with tips on it have been around for, you know, 500,000 years. Bow and arrow has been around for 100,000 years. Sure. I mean, uh, weapons have been around for a long time for selection to have acted. And who knows it when? been around long enough to help develop the kind of throwing capacity? You talk a bit about the... You yeah, speculate. we have a paper in nature on that. Yeah, and, um, yeah. absolutely. I mean, we look looks like the evolution of throwing has been a good two million years. So we've been, we've been throwing things for a long time. And so, you know, once you can throw things, you can kill somebody from a distance and all of a sudden, you know, size or speed... Aren't necessarily the only important determining factors in terms of rule winner. 
when a fight. So fighting is, is, you know, a part of the mix and you can't ignore it as one of the many kinds of physical activities that we evolved to do. And, you know, as you, as you may remember in the book, I also think about how that is affected in terms of the evolution of sports, right? Because, yeah, know, that, that was a, I found thing. that fascinating. I mean, well, first of all, you, you talk also about the, the brow ridge and how the brow ridge and testosterone levels, you know, may have been affected by the evolution of fighting, but, but also this, this idea of that, that sport could only exist, sport is different from play, right? And that sport could only have evolved with our kind of self-domestication. Can you just expand on that for a bit? Because I found that to be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we think of we think of of sport as being you know exercise and whatever, but but you know, sport is a kind of. I think we evolved all animals play as children, but we continue to play as adults, and and I think that one of the one of the ways in which humans have evolved play and sport is to help teach not only skills for hunting and fighting and all the other things that are really important because that's that's all obviously a key element in playing and sports, but also to help teach humans not to be reactively aggressive. Right. So most animals, when they're aggressive, they're, they're reactive, right? So, you know, you take a banana from a chimpanzee, it'll whack you. Take a banana from a human, they'll think first before they decide whether or not to. Well, hit. some do. <laughs> <laughs> most of us do, hopefully. But we, what, we're, what we excel at, this is my colleague Richard Rangham's research, but he's argued that what we're really good at is controlling reactive aggression, but what we're really excel at is proactive aggression more. So when we think of humans as being less violent, I mean, that's absolutely not true. We're just violent in different ways, right? We can kill millions with a touch of a button. I mean, I mean, look what's going on in Ukraine now. I mean, you know, one guy in, in Moscow just decides to start a war and look how many people have died because of his proactive aggression. I think what sports teaches us is not to be reactive, but actually to be appropriately proactively aggressive. Um, and that's, of course, been important in our evolutionary history. Well, I mean, sport is fun. And, you know, some people would say war is fun uh, as well. In a way that exercise isn't lifting dumbbells is never fun, and you know maybe just running in circles is is not particularly fun. But but sport is fun. You know, do we have a propensity, or you know, a, you talk also about dancing and how dancing was a major source of exercise in hunter gatherers. Well, physical activity again. I think that sport for most human beings until recently wasn't exercise; it was physical activity. Dancing is also a form of physical activity. Remember. You know, we evolved to be physically active, active for two reasons. When it's necessary and rewarding. And play is necessary. It teaches you skills. It gives you capacities to build up strength and stamina and speed and accuracy and all those sorts of things. But it also teaches you, you social skills, i.e. not to, it's not appropriate to, to thwack the referee, you know, when you get called out for, you know, missing something or whatever, or, or to hit your opponents if they score a goal on you, right? But we also make it fun. And that's one of the reasons why we make it rewarding. You get praised. And so if we want to help people be more physically active, I think that gives us a lesson, which is you know, not necessarily exercise. I and mean, think about most high school sports programs, right? The exercise fails to get most kids being active, but there are plenty of other ways to make it rewarding and fun. And for that matter, necessary. And that can be done through play rather than sport. So I think there's a lot to learn from that kind of perspective that we have failed to appreciate sometimes. Well, so, okay, I want to talk about ways that we can maybe nudge people to doing more exercise or maybe how people can nudge themselves. You know, I do a lot of work with companies in their HR functions, and a lot of companies are increasingly interested in the well-being of their employees. And so they're trying to design work environments that will inspire exercise, not the mandatory exercise that you talk about in the book, but making the stairs more attractive than the elevators or 
having kind of standing meeting rooms or, or other sorts of things like that. So but maybe before we jump into that, this a lot of this, these initiatives are based on the idea that sitting is the new smoking. So first of all, maybe is sitting the new smoking? And if so, right, how can we get people out of this sedentary lifestyle? Well, again, I mean, I think we, we treat exercise and physical activity in our bodies in such a, such a dreadful, overly simplistic way. I start the book of exercise off with thinking about inactivity because you want to understand activity, you have to understand inactivity. And there's this myth out there that, you know, modern Americans sit too much and that sitting is the new smoking, which is obviously bullshit. How can you tell me that my sitting in this chair is as bad as smoking cigarettes? It's clearly hyperbole. And I think it's one of the reasons why people react against a lot of the poorly packaged medical information that they get in various whiplashy sort of tidbits, sound bites. It is true that if you are never physically active, you will get into trouble. And of course, the most common way in which people today are physically inactive is sitting. So we blame sitting. But if you look at the epidemiological data, it turns out that it's leisure time sitting that really is most commonly associated with negative health outcomes. So people who have you know, jobs that require them to sit all day long, turns out they do just fine as long as they don't just sit for the rest of their day too, right? Uh, of course, commuting and sitting in front of the TV in the evening, et cetera, those don't lend themselves to, to healthy outcomes. The other thing is that if you look at actually how much hunter-gatherers sit, they sit as much as Americans, uh, about you know 10 hours a day. But what is importantly different is that, first of all, hunter-gatherers, when they're not sitting, are actually very physically active. They're active for about two and a quarter hours a day, moderate to vigorous physical activity. Whereas your average American is active for about 20 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity. There is a big difference. And then the other big difference is that when, is that sitting, how you sit actually matters, right? And it turns out that the big effect is sitting duration. So right now you and I are having this podcast conversation, which means I'm stuck in my chair for an hour. And normally I'd try to get up every once in a while. If I were a hunter-gatherer, I'd have to get up a lot because I'd have to tend the fire and run after kids and who knows what. And got to figure out how to do that. I got to figure out how to do the, the walking podcast. That'll you be should, the next absolutely. Thing. Yeah, because, <laughs> uh, because the data show that interrupted sitting, i.e. people who get up every 15 minutes or so, even if it's just to go to the bathroom or pour a cup of tea or, or pet the dog or something, um, have much better health outcomes than people who sit the exact same amount, but do so for long, uninterrupted bouts. And yeah, they now have these desks that have, they have like timers built into them so that every 50 minutes or so, the desk will either go up or go down. Yeah, well, that's fine. Anything, whatever works, yeah. whatever works. That's all good, right? The reason is that, it, that just even little bits of physical activity wake up your muscles and use blood sugar and turn on all kinds of genes and it has all kinds of effects that we still don't even understand. And they seem to have important health effects. So, so let's not blame sitting per se. It's really physical inactivity, prolonged physical activity, and also, you know, very inert kind of lifestyles where you sit for, for very long durations without any interruption. Well, I know a lot of people who are dismissive of kind of universities and K-12 schools that have physical ed as a class or invest resources. I mean, here at at my university, after post-pandemic, they just kind of got rid of most of the the classes that they used to have, right? So they used to have these classes, and I used to go to yoga a couple times a week. And I think it was it's relatively easy to cut that stuff because how do you square that with the educational mission, right? I mean, you know, you cut a math class, that's clearly, there's a difficult to tell a story there, but it's easy to kind of cut these things. And I think physical education is something in, at K-12, which is kind of hard to justify, how can we get that stuff back into the, <laughs> to the, yeah, to the yeah, curriculum? The, the notion that it's hard to justify is so sad because, because first of all, until recently, this, this idea that there's you know, 
education's job is only to educate the mind and not the body is based on some kind of bizarre and completely false sense that there's a, a dualism, right? That the mind and the body are, are not related. That's completely not true, right? Your body affects your mind and vice versa. And we know, for example, that kids who are more physically active actually have better attention spans. They learn more. They're much less likely to get into trouble. And in fact, one of the major ways in which you can treat or reduce the vulnerability to depression is being physically active. And if you've spent any time on a college campus now, you know that depression is, is an epidemic of depression on college campuses. And there's no question that some of that is tied to physical inactivity. Now, I'm not saying that physical activity and physical education would be a magic bullet to solve all those problems. It's not, but it's certainly an important contributing factor in mental health issues and, and cognitive health issues on, on campuses and in schools would unquestionably be better if people were more physically active. And so, so we have, have done ourselves and our students and our children enormous damage by removing physical education from the educational experience, which was the case for as long as education has existed since, you know, since the invention of education in the, you know, sometime in the middle ages or whatever, I'm not sure when. And furthermore, the idea that there's a trade-off in terms of time is also, is also not true because the time you spend, even just a little bit of physical activity, you get back in, in better concentration and in better mood and whatever. It's not a trade-off in time whatsoever. So we have done a really ourselves a, an enormous disservice by cutting these kinds of classes, by getting rid of physical education requirements. You know, until 1970, just about every university in the world required physical education, including my own Harvard, right? It was all got, gotten rid of in the recent years or now we're watered down to basically to meaningless or nothing levels. And we're only just now seeing the price of, of what that is, not only in terms of short-term mental health, but also long-term physical health. Well, I know you didn't write a book on public health, but I'm going to ask you some, <laughs> to kind of offer up some public health suggestions. You know, we just got through this pandemic and, you know, I think it, it hit the United States particularly hard. You talk about a lot of the consequences of inactivity, including things like depression. You talk about Alzheimer's, you talk about, you know, metabolic diseases, and you talk a bit about pathogens. And I think the impact that COVID had on the U.S. population was particularly severe, in part because of the underlying health conditions that a lot of people had. Alzheimer's in particular was, was a big factor. Diabetes was a big factor. Obesity was a big factor. And, and yet doctors typically don't prescribe exercise. Public health folks don't typically prescribe exercise. I mean, it would seem like if you could get people to exercise more, it would save an enormous amount of resources in the public health system. So how do we get people to exercise more? I mean, just, could we just pay them? What if we just paid everybody said, Hey, you know, look, we're, we're going to pay you, you know, you know, a dollar a mile, <laughs> you know, that you, you, you run, it would probably would have saved us trillions of dollars in, well, yeah. so in, this in is COVID 60, costs, right? Yeah. So this is the $64 trillion question. So let, let's break this down into two parts. So first of all, you're quite right. The U.S. was much more vulnerable to COVID than other countries, partly because of our poor health status. And I have to mention, you know, there's been several studies, including one that was done in California with the Kaiser Permanente Health System, which showed that people who get just moderate levels of physical activity were 2.5 times less likely to die and 1.7 times likely to be hospitalized from COVID. And we understand why that's the case, because physical activity not only is good for long-term problems like diabetes and heart disease, but actually also arms your, your immune system and makes you much more responsive to pathogens and increases the number of natural killer cells inside of toxic T cells 
and all these things that Americans have been learning about that are really important in, 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 in protecting us from pathogens like COVID. So had Americans been more physically active, a lot fewer people would have died. But that's just, that's just from COVID alone. Let's forget about all the other things. And as you say, it's a no-brainer, right? We have, it's, you know, physical activity is not a magic bullet. It doesn't prevent you from dying. It doesn't, you know, you can still get almost any disease on the planet if you're active, but it reduces your vulnerability considerably. And so the question really is, how do we get people to be more physically active when A, it's good for you, but B, it's instinctively weird, right? We have all these kinds of innate mechanisms to prevent ourselves from doing it. They, they, for me, the classic example, we've all been in an airport or a subway stop or a mall or whatever, where there's a stairway next to an escalator and everybody's taking the escalator, not the stairway. Why? Not because they're intrinsically lazy or stupid or ignorant. It's because it is a fundamental instinct to take the escalator, even though escalators you know, were invented only recently, right? It's a fundamental instinct to save energy, right? And, and so I go back to first principles, which is that we evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only, when it's necessary or rewarded. And if we really want to help people be more physically active, sure, we can tell them all the we, you know, tell them to the cows go humble about all the benefits of physical activity and maybe try to pay them money, et cetera. But, but for the most part, those efforts fail over and over and over again. If we want to succeed, we have to make it necessary. We have to make it rewarding. And to make it rewarding, to make it necessary, well, that's kind of obvious, right? So physical activity requirements in schools would be a great way of doing it. Making elevators less accessible in buildings. And you know, we could come up with a thousand ways to change our environments to make it more necessary. To make it rewarding, I think the answer is not too complicated. And the evidence is pretty clear to make it more social. Most of the things that we find rewarding are social, right? So how many people think of, of dance as exercise? Almost nobody, right? You, you dance because you want to have fun with somebody, right? Or meet people or whatever, right? If you go for a walk with a bunch of friends to talk, you know, just for a stroll on a Sunday, most people don't think of that as exercise. It's, it's just something you do that's enjoyable with friends. Um, there's all kinds of things that we do that we could do that, and if we kind of recast them and reframe them and, and promote them as, as social and fun, you know, play a soccer game, a tennis match or, or whatever. I mean, the list is very long, right? Um, we could we can help people be more physically active, but paying them or or just sending them a text message or or giving them a Fitbit. People have tried all this, and rarely does it have work. And when it does work, the effect sizes tend to be small. Mm -hmm. So, can organizations make investments that will facilitate kind of more of this social exercise? I think we need to be creative about it, and there are all kinds of ways to do it with lunchtime walking groups or other kinds of incentives. But, you know, again, just, just kind of promoting it as exercise is going to fail because right? exercise isn't fun for most people. The people who already like to exercise exercise, right? You're not, uh, the people who, who struggle to exercise, they struggle because it's not fun and they, they, it doesn't feel good, right? If you're not fit, you don't get the dopamine reward that somebody who's fit gets from exercise. And it takes months of training to get to the point where the exercise actually becomes neurally rewarding. And so, we have to help people get over that hump. And, and once they do, and their bodies change and their brains change in response to that, then, then it will become self-fulfilling. But, but until we do that, we need, to, we need to try other mechanisms. How could the medical system make changes? I mean, writing a prescription to someone and say, you know, hey, you know, go get exercise, that's, that's, well, you that know, might work a tiny bit. But it's, you mentioned in the book, um, you know, the story of the human body that we, we spend way too much time thinking about symptoms and not enough time thinking about kind of underlying 
well, mechanisms. The, the problem with the medical system is that, and it's a fundamental problem, is that you go see a doctor after you get sick, not to prevent you from getting sick. Right? And so most doctors, their job is to, is to treat you once you have diabetes, not to prevent you from getting diabetes in the first place. And we're not going to shift that, that structure easily, if ever. Right? So really, the job of getting people to exercise is not going to really happen through the medical profession. And, you know, doctors, you know, there's a whole movement in the American College of Sports Medicine to try to, you know, exercise as medicine, to try to promote exercise. It's all well and good. I don't think it's particularly effective because, again, by the time most people see a doctor, it's already too late, right? And we also know that when a doctor tells a patient to exercise, the adherence to the prescription is very, very poor. I mean, getting people to take their, their pills is pretty poor. So you think uh, getting them to run five miles a day is going to be even this even slightly as, as effective in terms of a prescription is, is unlikely. So I think we need to look outside the medical system really to make these kinds of shifts. And it's a, it's a public health issue. It's really a political issue. It's an educational issue. It's a social issue. It's a corporate issue. And I think one of the places to focus on is schools, right? Because we also know that a lot of the habits that people develop in college are the ones that they keep the rest of their life. And that's one of the reasons why like universities like mine or yours really are doing an enormous disservice to their students by not promoting more physical education because they're also they're also missing out on this important window to help people develop lifelong habits. And I think we could do a lot in that in that space. But you know, there are no magic bullets. And if there were a magic bullet, believe me, I'd have, I'd have fired it. There, they just nobody knows it. But I think again, if, unless we take an evolutionary and anthropological approach, we're we're going to fail and fail and fail and continue to fail because because we have to understand that we have to begin with the understanding that exercise is healthy, but it's also counterinstinctive. And for most people, it's not fun. And just telling them it's good for them isn't going to work. We just make them feel bad. We become what I call exorcists, people who nag and brag about exercise. It doesn't work. Well, Dan, the book Exercise is really, it's really fantastic. It does go into a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't even begin to talk about, but it builds on this other book, Story of the Human Body. And I do think that if you have a better understanding of how you have evolved and uh, how your body works, then you're in a much better place to design a life that will help you to cultivate not just your body, but also your mind. Dan, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.